a wealthy guy died, and he left a million dollars to his nephew, John. John was called into the lawyer's office, and the lawyer looks at John, and he says, according to your uncle's instructions, payment of your inheritance is going to depend on the choices that you have to make. And so the lawyer proceeded to hold out two fists in front of John and ask, do you choose the right hand or do you choose what is in my left hand? John decided to take what was in the right hand. Well, before opening the right hand, the lawyer opens his left hand to reveal a gold coin and a silver coin. And he said, had you chosen this hand, you would have received a substantial share in a gold mine or in a silver mine in Chile. Then he opened the right hand to reveal a nut and a coffee bean. And he said these represent a million dollars worth of nuts or coffee from Brazil. Which do you choose? Well, John chose the nuts. Week went by and John uh, makes his way to Brazil, but in the time that he was on his way to Brazil, the huge warehouse that housed all of these nuts that he had inherited burned to the ground. John was now bankrupt. At the same time, coffee price had doubled. He barely had enough to get on a plane to, to try to go back to the States, and so he had a choice. He could either go to New York to a friend there, or he could go to L.A. and stay with a friend, and he chose L.A. He's waiting for the plane to show up, and just before his plane shows up, the plane going to New York shows up, and it is one of those brand new super jets, and that thing just loads the people up, and they just take right off. Well, he had chosen to go to L.A., and by the time that plane came around, it was in 1928 Ford Tri-Motor that had a sway back that they said it took at least a half a day to get this thing off the ground. And there were cry nothing but crying children and goats, tethered goats, inside this plane. Well, somewhere over the Andes, one of the engines of the airplane fell off and the plane was going down. And so John, he sees the hand right in the wall. He climbs up to the cockpit and he says, man, you need to get me off of this plane or you're all going to die. You know, kind of a Jonah thing, like get me off this plane, you're going down. He says, give me a parachute. And the man says, the, the pilot says, well, on this airline, if you're going to jump, if you're going to bail out, you have to take two parachutes. All right, so John takes both parachutes he grabs them, he jumps out of the plane, and as he's going down, he's trying to decide which cord to pull. He's got two choices. Well, he pulls the cord on the left, nothing happened. He's flying towards the ground. And so he reaches for the other cord, and it's rusty, and it pulls away. The, the, the parachute goes up, but the shroud lines are cut, and so... He's on his way, he's hurling to the ground, and at a, as a last-ditch effort, he cries out, Saint Francis, save me! And all of a sudden, this giant hand came out of the sky and grabs John by the wrist. And there is John dangling there between heaven and earth, and the quiet, still voice says, Saint Francis Xavier? or St. Francis Assisi. We make decisions every day. Fortunately, most decisions we make aren't like life or death, where we are dangling over eternity, where we are dangling, you know, off some building and we're trying to make some decision. I mean, most decisions that we make on a daily basis aren't major decisions that are life or death. But the truth is, we've all made decisions that we have come to regret. And as we continue this series in Joshua chapter 9 tonight, we're going to examine here from this chapter a decision made by Joshua and the elders of Israel. And I'm going to tell you right up front, it was a bad decision. Even good people make bad decisions. In fact, even good people who have made a lot of good choices, still can make bad choices. And what I'm getting at is nobody is immune. In fact, 
It's actually possible for a bunch of good people to make bad choices together. If you go back 40 years in the story, what you'll find is that at Kadesh Barnea in Numbers 13 and 14, all but Joshua and Caleb decided not to go into the land, and the rest is history. Everyone over 20 years old died in the wilderness. Here's the thing. Bad decisions often come with bad consequences. For 40 years, they wandered through the wilderness. For 40 years, they performed funerals every day of the year, and it all went back to one bad decision. Well, here in Joshua chapter 9, in tonight's episode, the mistake that Joshua and the elders of Israel make, it could have had devastating consequences. It could have been a devastating blow to, to God's promised victory, and there were consequences, and we'll see that, though not as severe of what happened 40 years earlier. And, and the reason that we're going to see is because Joshua, when he realized that they had made a mistake, they responded rightly, and so God was willing to bring good through it. And so tonight, from Joshua chapter 9, I want to give you five easy steps to make a bad decision. So let's look at this. And there's a map, the Gibeonites, there were four cities in total. If, if you look to the, what is it, to the right there, down in Gilgal, that's where they crossed the Jordan River. Jericho was first, and then what happened at Ai was close to Jericho. Gibeon, this was next on the list to be destroyed. And God had stated that all of the Canaanite cities, they, they had to be destroyed. And the Gibeonites knew this. They heard this. They were aware of this. And they were terrified of Israel. And they knew they couldn't defeat Israel. And so they came up with a deceitful plan. So let me give you the first of five easy steps to make a bad decision. Number one, underestimate the enemy's deceptiveness. You know, most enemies would pose more of an obvious threat. If you look at the first couple verses here, verse number one, it tells us that all the kings, what had happened in Jericho and Ai, man, they decided to form this alliance. They were going to go to war. They're going to take up their, their shields and their swords, and it's going to be real obvious who the enemy was. Well, that's not what Gibeon decided to do. The most dangerous enemies that we ever face in life are the not-so-obvious ones. The enemy who comes in disguise. Look what it says in verse number four. They acted deceptively. What did they do? Well, as you read the passage here, they disguised, first of all, their identity. Secondly, they offered a plausible story. And third, they offered some tangible evidence. Let's just look at it here. It says, they gathered provisions and took worn-out sacks on their donkeys and old wineskins cracked and mended. And they wore old patched sandals on their feet and threadbare clothing on their bodies. Their entire provision of bread was dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, we have come from a distant land. Please make a treaty with us. You get the picture? They've disguised themselves as foreigners, but they're not foreigners. They're Canaanites. They're the enemy. They also offer this plausible story. In verse number nine, after Joshua and the elders ask a question, they tell more of the story. Your servants have come from a faraway land because of the reputation of the Lord your God. We have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two Amorite kings beyond Jordan. So our elders in verse 11 and all the inhabitants of our land told us, take provisions with you for the journey. Go and meet and say, we are your servants. Please make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we took it from our houses as food on the day we left to come but see, it is now dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, but see, they're cracked. And these clothes and sandals of ours are worn out from, extremely, from the extremely long journey. You see what's going on here? They're lying. They're offering evidence, but it is all fake. It is all a lie. If this group of men had been an authentic official delegation, it would have comprised of a much larger company bearing adequate resources, provisions with them for the entire trip, 
Real ambassadors would have thrown away the dry, moldy bread. Why? Because they had servants traveling with them. They would have thrown away the old dry, moldy bread, and they would have made fresh bread every morning. As officials, they would have packed proper attire. They're going to make a treaty. They would have made sure that they packed their very best and plenty of clothes for the trip in order to show up and make a good appeal before Joshua and the Israelites. And notice what they don't say. They don't say anything about the defeat of Jericho. They didn't say anything about the defeat of Ai. Why did they conveniently leave that out? If they were from a distant land, those events had just happened. News spread slow. How could they possibly have heard of such recent developments? Here's the bottom line. The enemy was able to effectively manipulate them, deceive them. What does this mean for us? Well, Gibeon here can be seen as a type of the devil. We have a real enemy, don't we? Here's what the scripture tells us, Ephesians 6, 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. Satan is a formidable foe. And Satan is able to disguise himself. Satan is on the prowl. Peter says this. He says, be sober-minded, be alert, because your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he, who he can devour. Christian, just stop and let those words sink in tonight. Satan is on the prowl looking to devour us. Now, the thing is, Satan doesn't show up in his red leotards. He doesn't show up with his pitchfork. Yeah, I'm the devil. Hey, he doesn't do that. The Bible tells us that he is able to transform himself as an angel of light. This is 2 Corinthians. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Like the Gibeonites, Satan he acts deceptively. He disguises himself. Peter knew that firsthand. Peter says, be sober, be on alert, be on guard, because the devil's roaring. He's, he's going around like a roaring lion. He wants to devour. Peter knew that firsthand. Remember what happened to him on the night of Jesus' arrest? You see, Satan is a counterfeiter. Satan is a, he masquerades as an angel of light. And he even goes so far to try to convince us that he's not real how many people today think it's a you know the devil it's a big joke you know these christians are scared of you know the devil oh you know like like he's some type of a fictional character well the bible reveals him to be very real jesus spoke about satan as a very real character in fact jesus said this about the devil in john 8 he said satan was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him remember that there's no truth in him when he tells a lie jesus says he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies so church let's remember this satan uses deceptive methods he used deceptive devices deceptive words it was satan who was able to convince eve into making what a very bad choice. He convinced Eve to take the apple, whatever the fruit was, to disobey God, and here we are 6,000, 7,000 years later, and we are still dealing with the consequences of Adam's choice and Eve's choice. One decision, and here we are still paying the consequences. How did Satan do that? Did Satan, did Satan show up in the garden in his red leotards? I'm the devil, I hate God, and I hate you, and I want to destroy you? No. He, he showed up in the form of a serpent. That's kind of a whole nother study, isn't it? I mean, we could spend some time. How is it that Eve's talking to a snake? I mean, it seems a little weird. I mean, I've seen plenty of Disney movies to, to think, okay, these things talk, right? I mean, dolls talk and, you know, all this other. But 
you know, how, how did that work exactly? I, I don't know. But I do know that Adam and Eve were living in a utopia. They didn't have a sin nature. There was no sin didn't exist at the time. And yet Satan was able to fool them. He was able to deceive Eve. And Eve made a choice. How did he do that? He twisted the truth. He lied about God. He called God's goodness into question. He lied about what the consequences would be. God said, if you eat of that tree, you are surely going to die. And what did Satan say? You're not going to die. Now look, either Satan was lying or God was lying. They made two opposite statements. God said, you're going to die if you eat that tree. And Satan said, no, you're not going to eat that tree. Listen, Satan is tricky, and he's a liar. And we have to be careful, church, that we don't buy into his lies, especially when we are making decisions. Here's some lies that Satan would tell us when we're in the middle of making a decision. How about this one? It's your life. You should be free to do whatever you want. Boy, he loves that one. It's your life. Don't, nobody can tell you what to do. It's your life. It's 2023. That Bible is so out of touch, man. Come on, dude. So last season. The devil tells you that lie. Hey, here's another one. You really deserve to be happy. Everyone should be happy. You deserve to be happy. Make, you know, do what makes you happy. Follow your heart. That's a good, that's a good one that he likes to tell. He likes to tell the lie, you'll be happy when, what is the decision you're trying to make? What, what is the course that you're charting? You'll be happy when you blank. How about this one? It'll all work out in the end. You just do what you're going to do and don't worry about it. Don't worry, just, it's, it's all going to work out. Here's another one. God doesn't really care either way. He doesn't care. And how about this one? God isn't really good anyway. He's not really good. That's one of the lies he told Eve in the garden. The only way to counter Satan's lies is to know the truth. That's the only way. If you don't know the truth, and where do we find the truth? We, Jesus said in John 17, 17, that this word, your word, is truth. The only way that you're going to be able to pick up on Satan's lies is if you know what the truth is. If you know the truth, Jesus Christ, and if you know his word. And so, uh, what is the truth? Well, the truth is the devil is a defeated foe. He doesn't want us, to th he doesn't want anybody to know that. He acts like you know, he's got the run of the place, but he is a defeated foe. And so what do we do? We partner up with the Lord and we resist the devil with the truth. We arm ourselves with the sword of the Spirit. Jesus used the word of God to defeat the lies of the devil. And so church, listen, there is a real devil and he really is a roaring lion and he really does want to devour you. And one of the ways he does it is deceiving us, selling us lies that cause us to make decisions that, that we follow. We make decisions that end up taking us off course from where God would ever want us to be. Well, that's the first easy step. You ready for the second one? Number two. The second easy step to making a bad decision. Number two, overestimate your own perceptiveness. So the first one is underestimate your enemy's deceptiveness. Step number two is overestimate your own perceptiveness. What goes on here? Well, look at verse number 14. Gibeonites tell their story, right? Very convincing and it says in verse 14, then the men of Israel took some of their provisions. What's this mean? They took a little sample. Yep. Just like they said, it's pretty moldy. It's dry. It's, this has been sitting out for a while. Here's, here's where I think, this is what I think gets them. They've already had a few wins under their belt. You know how this works. You play sports. You get a few wins under your belt, right, team? You get a few wins under your belt, and man, you get a little cocky, like, we got this. I can remember when I was playing sports in high school, right, and, you know, I was awful, but, and our team was awful, but 
follow me, you know. We, we, we would, we'd go, we'd walk into a gym, you know, and uh, after one or two wins, and we'd see this team over there, and they're kind of scrawny, and they're a little kid, you know, they look like they're all the, like, the B team, the B squad's coming out to play the A squad, you know. This isn't a small, private Christian school of, you know, 40 kids, you know, <laughs> so stay with me here, right? You know, we're the, we're the, the Z squad compared, but man, we, we walk in there, and you're feeling confident, we could do this. Look at these little chumps, you know. You get some wins under your belt. And Joshua had some wins under his belt. There was Jericho, man. That was a big one. AI, mm, I mean, they got him the second time around. I mean, things were going good. And oftentimes, church, it's after a win that we are most vulnerable to making a bad choice. Check that. Check that. Check how, how easy it is for the devil to do a little deceptiveness with us. He works with our ego and our, and our pride, doesn't he? I mean, that's what caused Satan to fall himself. It was his pride. He wanted, to, he wanted to be up there. He wanted to take God's place. He wanted to push, slide off that throne there, God. I, I, I want to do this, right? It was his pride. And so he, he, when, when he sees pride in us, man, he's, he works with that. That gives him a foothold. That gives him something to, to work with. And so we have to be careful, church, that when we've had a win, that we, don't, that we recognize, look, uh, I need to be alert and on guard just the same as I would be had I been coming off a series of losses. Well, Notice with the elders in Joshua, they are guarded. They're suspicious. They're thinking. Look, look, it says in verse 7, the men of Israel replied, perhaps you live among us. Bingo. Right question, right? Right statement there. How can we, what does he say? How can we make a treaty with you? you? For all we know, you live down the street. For all we know, you're Canaanites. Yes. Yes. You see, they're suspicious. They're thinking. They're not, they're not uh, you know, they don't have their head in the sand. Joshua says to them, verse 8, or they say to Joshua, we're your servants. And then uh, at the end of verse 8, then Joshua asks them, who are you and where do you come from? Right? So they're inquisitive. They're asking the right questions. They're suspicious at the right points. They, they look at the evidence, right? They take some of their provisions, right? So what are they doing? They're taking the scientific approach. They're just looking at the facts. They're looking at the evidence. But what do we know that they didn't know? It was all fake. It was all just a sham. It was all a made-up story. They only hear what they want to hear, seems like. It seems like they only see the they can only see the evidence that they can see. They don't know what they don't know. In negotiating, that's called the black swan. The black swan, right? The the unknown unknown. And you don't know what you don't know. They didn't know what they didn't know. They're asking questions, they're trying to, to figure it out, but they just don't know. Why? Because they can't see what's been hidden from them. And that's what we have to realize in making decisions, that there's always things that we just don't know. Smart as we may be, as many wins as we may have had, we don't know everything. They depend on their senses, they examine the facts, they discuss the matter, they agree on their conclusion, they agree, we're being told the truth, and so what do they do? They make a peace treaty with the Gibeonites. And the truth is, they had the grounds to do this. God had told them earlier that they could offer peace to cities that were outside of Canaan, right? So in their mind, they're not breaking God's word. They're not disobeying. In their mind, based on what they know, they're just, they feel like they're in the boundaries. They're doing something that God would have allowed them to do. So what are they thinking? Here's what it is. We got this. We can handle this. We can handle it. And it's amazing how often we act 
how often we do things when we only have a small percentage of the facts. In fact, wouldn't you say that some of our pretty bad decisions in life have been decisions that we have made when we were only partially informed, right? You know, as parents, have you ever done this, parents? You know, you come home, you see the place is a wreck, and you automatically start deducing. You know what I mean? Like, I've been a dad a long time. I know exactly, I can see the evidence. I know what's going on here. I know there's been uh, some, you know, some shenanigans going on here, right? And you start, have you ever, parents, have you ever disciplined the wrong kid? And then you find out, and you feel like a moron. You feel like an idiot, you know? In that one moment, you were so proud of yourself for getting to the bottom of it without having all the, deed, the, the details, and then you feel like an idiot, right? But this all seemed very logical. It seemed all very convincing, but it was all wrong, and it was all a lie. Here's what Proverbs 14, 12 says. There is a way that seems right to a person, but its ends is the way of death. Look, we have to recognize rarely do we see things like they truly are. We rarely, rarely do. We're prone to see only what we want to see. Isn't it true? You're making a decision and you kind of want it, you kind of want to see it work out this way. So we tend to just see it that way. We, we convince ourselves. Even the best of us can be fooled by our intuitions. We can be fooled by our feelings, right? Can't we? We can. And we can think that our feelings and our intuitions are God. You know, that voice that, that we heard. I, I heard, I sensed this. And maybe it is, maybe it isn't. We can be fooled by that. Certainly, church, we have to use the mind that God has given us when making decisions, but we have to heed the warning of Proverbs 3, 5, and 7 where it says, do not rely on your own understanding. Say it with me. Do not rely on your own understanding. Again, do not rely on your own understanding. One more time. Do not rely on your own understanding. What in the world could that mean in Hebrew? Here's what it means. Don't rely on your own understanding. That's what it means. That's exactly what it means. Don't be, verse 7, don't be wise in your own eyes. That is exactly what they did. And I can promise you this, that every bad decision that I have ever made can be traced back to me. I know you thought I was going to say my wife or my kids or my dog, but no. Me, myself, and I. And I would dare say that every bad decision that you've ever made can be traced back to, you say it, me, right? It's back to me. Just because something sounds good, just because something seems like a great opportunity, just because something feels right, just because your gut says yes, just because you've got a plan and the smarts to work that plan, it doesn't mean that it's a good decision. It may be. But how often do we just go with our gut? And rather than leaning on our own understanding, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells Joshua and the elders, and it tells us today, in all your ways, know him. Trust him with all your heart. Following your heart can be a disaster. That's just one bad choice after another. But trusting the Lord will never lead to disaster. Ever, ever. Step number three. Halfway. Here we go. Step number three. It's up on the screen. You got it? Step number three, treat praying about your decisions with neglectfulness. Look what it says here in verse number 14. The men of Israel took some of their provisions. What does the end of the verse say? But did not seek the Lord's decision. They didn't bother 
praying about it. They took the scientific approach, but they didn't take the spiritual approach, right? They did not seek the Lord's decision. Now, to be fair, as a strategist, Joshua knew enough to talk to God before leading the troops into battle, right? He knew that. Time and time again, we see that, that, that Joshua made the right choice. But this peace treaty just, it seemed innocent enough that they could just make this decision on their own. Perhaps they thought that the evidence was so strong, it didn't really, there was no necessity to ask God, to to talk to God about it. And it wasn't that their uh, uh, investigation was sloppy, it's that they were alone in their decision. That's, That's the problem. It wasn't that they didn't think, it's that they didn't what, church? Pray. They thought, they investigated, but they forgot to pray. In the book of James, James writes, James 4.2, they didn't have, why? Because they didn't ask. They didn't take the time to seek the Lord. They walked by sight and not by faith. And this failure was contrary to the explicit instructions that the Lord gave to Joshua on how to discern the will of the Lord. If you go back to and read it later, Numbers 27, 22, Joshua could have gone to Eliezer, the, the high priest, the high priest with the Urim. He could have determined the will of God. All it meant was take a trip down there, see the high priest. We'll know what God's decision is. They didn't talk to God. Look. Can't we apply this, each of us, to our own lives, this lesson? Neglecting to pray about even the most obvious decisions often only sets ourselves up for trouble. How often do we not pray about the decisions that we make? We see the evidence, we listen to our gut, and we assume then that God must be in it. It's, It's as if we think that if God's not in something, there's gonna be this giant red flag right? On the tip of a red pitchfork held by a guy in a red leotard suit, I mean with red horns and a red tail with a little spike at the end of it. Like, like it's going to be that obvious, like, oh, I can see that one, you devil. I can see how you're trying to fool me that time. That's not how the devil works. He doesn't, he doesn't show up with a big red flag. In fact, it all seems so logical and convincing most of the time. So why do we rely on ourselves to make decisions when we know that we should rely on God? If we desire to follow God's way, why then do we act without the clear guidance of God? Is it that we underestimate seeking God's wisdom? Is that what it is? Is it that we, we, we think consulting with God is immaterial? Is that what it is? Do we think that the matter is not important enough to ask God or that God's just unconcerned? Is it that we question God's goodness or is it that we are afraid that God's answer won't fit with what we want to do so we don't bother to ask? Look, I think these are questions we have to ask ourselves, church. And I think that if we don't ask questions like this of ourselves, then we're only kidding ourselves and we're only going to set ourselves up for more bad decisions. Beware of assuming that I have this all under control. You see, Joshua 9 is a warning against cocky independence. I love what Alan Redpath wrote. He said this When common sense says that a path is right, Lift up your head to God. For the path of faith and the path of blessing may be in a completely different direction to what you call common sense. He nailed it, right? It could be in a completely different direction than common sense. So what do we do? We should seek God earnestly. David prayed, I eagerly seek you. When you have a decision to make, eagerly seek God about it. Also, seek him entirely. David said that he sought God with all his heart. 
And I think sometimes we, we really don't seek the Lord this way with all of our heart because we are already set on our own plans. It reminds me, I was, this week I went back, I encourage you to do this, go back and read 2 Chronicles chapter 18, Ahab and Jehoshaphat. And Ahab wants to go to battle and, and so he asked Jehoshaphat to, to join him with his forces. They were going to go together. And, and, and Jehoshaphat, you know, a godly man, says, hey, okay, first, seek the Lord. Let's seek the Lord about this. So Ahab gathers 400 of his prophets, of his men, and, and he asks them what they think. Jehoshaphat's like, yeah, okay, but what about asking God? Do, do you have anybody who can talk to God about this. And so they go and uh, uh, Ahab says, yeah, I got one guy, but I hate that guy because that guy's always telling me what I don't want to hear. And that's what we do. We only pray when we're hoping that we're pretty sure God's going to rubber stamp. Approved. You go. And if there's any sense that perhaps God's not in it, man, oftentimes we just, we shy away from seeking the Lord. We're not to seek the Lord like customers looking for options. We're to seek the Lord like servants listening for orders. God told David, I will instruct you and show you the way to go. I will give you counsel. Church, if you ask God for wisdom, if you go to him with decisions that you're going to make, and you say, Lord, I need wisdom. Would you give it to me? God will give you wisdom if you will seek him with all of your heart, if you will put whatever it is on the altar and say, God, you know what? You choose. You choose. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back away from this decision, and you choose. And you just make it clear and plain for me. Psalm 2711 is a prayer that I've prayed so many times since 2003 in my life, teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a plain path. That is a good prayer. And that is a prayer that, that I think we are wise to pray. Lord, I want to know your way, not my way. Your way. And when we seek God for wisdom, he will give us wisdom. And, and David says in Psalm 32, I'll, that God says, I'll instruct you. I'll show you the way to go. But verse number nine is the clincher. It says, do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding that must be controlled with a bit and bridle or else it will not come near. In other words, I'll tell you what to do, but don't be stubborn and not do it. If I tell you what to do, then you're going to have to do it or, or I'm not going to tell you. See? Do you understand? And so when we go to the Lord had Joshua and the leaders paused to pray about what they saw, they would have concluded the whole thing was a trick. God will always give his best to those who leave the choice to him. And so, look, say to the Lord, you choose. You have a decision? Go to him, get on your knees, and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? That leads us to step number four. I'll try to make these faster for you, okay? Step number four. Here's step four. Impulsively make your decisions with hastiness. Impulsively make your decisions with hastiness. What happens in verse 16? Look at verse 16. Do I have the wrong verse up there? No, I don't. So it's 15 and 16. So up on the screen there, verse 15. So Joshua established peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the community swore an oath to them. And then verse 16, it says, what does it say? Three days later, they heard that the Gibeonites were the neighbors living among them. Three days. Just three days. Three days. They, could, they, they couldn't have waited three more days. Had they waited just a little bit, had they sought the Lord and not rushed into this, not got hasty, they would have found out the truth. Now, how did they find out that, that they had been deceived? Maybe these ambassadors openly admitted it. Maybe they hear the battle plan that they're getting ready to go up. If you read the chapter, they're getting ready to go up and attack these cities of the Gibeonites. Maybe they hear the plan. They're like, yeah, time out, guys. It's us. Yeah, we're from there. It's our city. Remember the, remember the peace treaty? <laughs> we're protected. You know, it, you can't touch us now. 
We don't, we don't know how they discovered this, but they discovered that they had blundered, and no doubt they're humiliated. No doubt that they're really embarrassed about what they have done. And what we need to take from this is that we need to learn to wait on God. I would dare say that all of my hurried decisions have been decisions that I've later come to regret. I've later come to see that was a foolish decision. Learn to wait on God. Go to him and pray and ask him for wisdom. And it, it, you know, oftentimes it's not, you get, we get on our knees, and we, Lord, would you tell me what to do? And, and then it, it doesn't mean that we should just get up and then, you know, make a decision at that point. And I think sometimes we get on our knees, we pray about it, and then we just, whatever that feeling is we have that we should do, we act on that. And what I would encourage you to do is to pray and to wait on God long enough to be able to separate what you want and what God really wants. To be able to determine in your heart which is which. Your will versus God's will. But wait on him. Psalm 37, 7, David says, be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for him. Pray David's prayer in Psalm 25, 5. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. I wait for you all day long. And in Psalm 25, David, David says, no one who waits for, the, for you, Lord, will be disgraced. So wait on him. If you want to make a bad decision, just make a quick decision. Alan, back to Alan Redpath's advice. He says, when voices tell you that action is urgent, that something must be done immediately, refer everything to the tribunal of heaven. Then, if you are still in doubt, dare to stand still. If, if called on to act and you have not time to pray, don't act. If you are called on to move in a certain direction and cannot wait until you have peace with God about it, don't move. Be strong enough and brave enough to dare to stand and wait on God, for none of them that wait on him shall ever be ashamed. And Alan says that is the only way to outmatch the devil. Wait on God. Step number five. Here's step five. Continue to avoid consequential unpleasantness. I'll explain. Do what you can to avoid any consequences. Now, this step, fortunately, is the one step out of the five that Joshua and the elders did not take. But often we take this step. They did just the opposite. Often what we do is when we've made a bad decision and we recognize it and now we're faced with some consequences, you know what we do? We make another bad decision, <laughs> right? We try to fix it. We, we make another bad decision to try to undo what we've done. And when it becomes like a snowball, you know? Like one bad decision after another, trying to undo all the bad decisions. And Joshua and Caleb, or Joshua and, and the, the elders, they didn't, they didn't do that. You see, bad choices usually have bad consequences. Um, you know, we have the freedom to make our choices, but we don't have the freedom to choose our consequences. Adam chose. His choice cost him paradise. Esau's choice cost him his birthright. Lot's choice cost him his family. Moses' choice cost him the promised land. King Saul's choice cost him his kingdom. Uh, Absalom's choice cost him his life. David's choice cost him his joy and his peace and his child. Samson's choice cost him his life. Judas's choice cost him his apostleship and his life. Pilate, Agrippa, and Felix, all Roman leaders, they all chose wrong and it cost them their eternity. You, you see, we make our decisions and then our decisions make us. That's how it works. There's consequences. And it only took three days for them to discover that they had made a mistake, but they had to live with their choice for a lifetime, for generations. They had to live with their choice. And so let's not be under the misconception that, that we can make bad choices, confess our sin, and 
while we can be forgiven, don't make the assumption that all the consequences go away. That all of a sudden, we're, we're in the free and clear, and everything, goes, everything resets, and every, we, go, we go back to zero. It, it, we're all, it's all going to be okay. It's not how it works. We must live with the consequences of our wrong actions often much longer than we would ever choose for ourselves. I know we say that this is our life and we can make our choices, yeah. But you know it's bigger than that? It's bigger than that. Because you make your choices and your choices make you and then you, you make those choices and those choices affect your kids. And those choices then affect your grandkids, right? And it just goes down from one generation to, the, to generation. The, the circle gets broader and it goes on and on. It could have been really easy for Joshua to make their mistake right and to, to right their wrong by making another bad decision. What could they have done here? What could they have done? In fact, if you notice in verse 18, the people are... They're upset. They're grumbling like, what did you guys do? Why did you guys make this treaty? They're upset. It would have been really easy for Joshua and the elders to say, we got to fix this thing. Let's march up there to Gibeon, Gibeon and let's, let's slaughter them all. Let's, let's, let's clear house. Let's, let's put them down. Let's take care of the problem. But if you read through the end of the chapter, that's not what they do. They recognize that they had made an oath before God. And if they were to break that oath, that was twice as bad as the, as the treaty they had just made. That, was, that would be another bad, really bad choice and that they had to face their mistake rather than try to fix their mistake. They had sworn an oath. And so Joshua responds in a godly way. And this is, this is the hope part of the message because you know what? We've all taken these easy steps. They're easy. I've, I've taken these steps. So have you, right? We've, we've done this. We've made our share of bad choices. But listen, when you make a bad choice, let me encourage you, right? First of all, don't. But when we find ourselves here, how are we to deal with it? Joshua teaches us some things here. First of all, what did Joshua do? He willingly, he willingly, do you have it there? Go to the, yeah, that slide. Uh, he willingly confessed his mistake. He fessed up. He admitted that they had made a blunder. They graciously relent. That's what we're to do. Just admit it. Confess it to God. I made the wrong choice. I did the wrong thing. Lord, confess it to him. Don't, don't try to run from it and hide from it. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Confess it. Secondly, they confronted the enemy. When Joshua found out what the Gibeonites had done, he admonished them about their sin. And that's what we're to do as well. We are to confront our enemy. We have to confront our failures. We have to confront our mistakes. We have to confront our bad decisions, our sin. What do we do with it? What do we do with it? We... we we apply the truth to it. We allow the word of God to speak, to confront us where we are, and then we use the word of God to confront our enemy, to confront Satan, to resist the devil. Satan can't stand in the presence of the truth. And so if we confront Satan with the word, what does he do? He flees, he runs, right? And so we confess our mistake. We confront the enemy. Then Joshua controls the enemy. Immediately, he, he tells the Gibeonites, all right, you guys are going to be woodcutters and water carriers. We're putting you guys to work. You're going to be our servants for the rest of your lives and for all generations. In fact, you can go into Ezra and Nehemiah. 500 years later, these guys are still hauling water and chopping wood. That's what they were doing. In fact, they were... 500 of them went back 
with the, with the exiles. And so it seems as if they integrated, that, they, that their time with the Israelites and uh, serving the temple, that they became true believers in God. And what a story of, of mercy and grace in all of that. But, but the point is that Joshua, he confronted the enemy. He confronted his sin. He confronted the enemy. And then he controlled the enemy. And then he keeps his commitment We have to give the leaders of Israel credit for keeping their word, for standing by their oath. They didn't violate their oath before God. That would have brought another stain on God. And the simple application is rather than being defeated by our choices, we're to go on living a committed life for Christ. You hear that? Rather than living in defeat, you made some bad decisions, you're, you're facing the consequences of that, okay, confess that, confront that, control that, and go on and live a committed life for Jesus now. You see, this is a story of grace. This is a story of mercy. And while all the mistakes we make may embarrass us, don't they? We've all been embarrassed by bad choices. But what we need to remember is that no mistake is final for the dedicated Christian. And that God can use even our blunders to accomplish his purposes. Amen. Might be some scars. There will be some consequences along the way. But listen, God can use your blunders. He can use your mistakes. And and he can infuse his grace and his mercy into your story. And he can bring about good. And so bad choices don't have to be the end of the story, church. It doesn't have to be the end of the story. Let's not go on, continue to make bad choices. But when we do, let's own up to our choices. Let's confess it to God and then go on and live a committed life for Christ. And God can bring about good in spite of it. Amen.